I totally messed that one up. It, are you recording now? Yes. Okay. We're going to call that good, and you can sort it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guest arrives without warning. Welcome, listeners. Uh, our discussion of the Night Circus was going to overrun our usual hour to hour, ten minute mark that we try and hit every week, and so we are releasing a continuance of our discussion as a separate uh, podcast. So, welcome, listeners, to this episode of the Pretenders Podcast. I am here with Todd Mack and Kirsta, and we are going to continue discussing the Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Morgenstern. Aaron Morgenstern. Chapter one. Buttercup lived on a small farm. <laughs> Dang it. It's a wrong story. <laughs> so we wrapped up talking some about Celia and uh, what makes her so great. Should we take a moment and talk about the kind of contrasting teaching styles that we saw from the two mentors? Yes. Uh, for Celia and for Marco. Neither one a uh, particularly good teacher. This is not good pedagogy. <laughs> They are uh, both remarkably good magicians. Yes. I mean, what we should say, again, as we've, we've discussed uh, pedagogical methods in the past, and sometimes questionable methods lead to really great results. And it seems like this is another one of those cases, because, man, they are both really, really good. And their students are really, really good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. The oh. students are both phenomenal. Yes. Well, I thought you were saying the mentors are really good. Yeah, no, the mentors are terrible, is... but the, uh, the students are great. Well, they're good magicians, though. Well... Well, except, guess, except for uh, Prospero kind of make himself disappear. <laughs> dissolving himself into oh, the universe. Overshot the mark a little. <laughs> okay, but if you've been practicing magic for hundreds of years and then, like, you get bored and decide to Try and dilute become... yourself in the entire world, like, come on, everyone's done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me who, had, who hasn't tried that a, a, a time or two? I love the the moment when she walks in and he's looking in the window and just looking at his own hand that's mm-hmm. disappearing and then yes. he hides it. <laughs> he's like, well, what? One of the things I think is really interesting about this book is that there are a lot of mysterious things that are teased and then like a few chapters later you actually get an explanation. Mm-hmm. And not, I mean, there's so much in the book that's mysterious that's just magical dreamlike that isn't ever explained, but you, it's like you have the mysterious statue that doesn't that doesn't ever move then later like you get a chat that explains like what the statues are and then you have you know hector bowen's hand disappears and then seal explains like this is why my father's hand's disappearing and so i appreciated that as i'm going through i'm like are you you know or like are you ever going to explain how poppet knew bailey's name and then like later they do explain Mm -hmm. that so i I found that very satisfying satisfying yeah yeah so let's talk about these two systems of magic and i guess one question maybe to start with is are they are they accessing the same magic but through different means, or are these two really completely different systems of magic? So is there one force that <laughs> permeates the whole universe? Yes. Or is this... Because, all right, hers seems to be much more rooted in herself. Genetics? Yeah, her, and herself. And, and, I mean, that's also her upbringing, is her, her father was teaching her in this kind of um, maybe detached emotionality. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Uh, it definitely, like, she had way more personal interactions with her father than Marco ever had with his teacher. Mm-hmm. But so she Mar- also has natural ability. Right. Mm-hmm. She without, uh, without understanding what she's doing, she can break things and put them back together mm-hmm. without any training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marco is just a blank slate. He's just a smart kid who is then trained through books. Through books. Uh, so, so the two teaching styles, we have this very 
abusive physical but but personal relationship going on between Celia and her father and then I, I guess you could say Marcos is still uh, kind of an emotional abuse in how distant and uh lonely his his upbringing makes him and that it seems like the, the teaching is basically I'm locking you in a room with all the books that have what you need to know well he's also have I mean you, you talked about before about uh, Celia as Rapunzel but Marco also has something of Rapunzel in, in him. Mm-hmm. He grew up essentially alone, locked in, a, in, a, in an apartment with a bunch of books and had l- very little human interaction. I think Celia has far more human interaction over the course of her life than Marco does. Yeah. And now I want to also bring in Harry Potter. Which one of these is more of a Harry Potter upbringing? The, uh, <laughs> which is these upbringings? Like, because he's another character that, you know, horrible abusive household, but actually a pretty well, well-rounded kid. <laughs> socially, not socially awkward. When he reaches well, if Hogwarts, you're, if you're or, comparing, see, and I think we're, I think there's two things. I think we're talking about two separate things. One is this, the, the emotional way in which they're taught. The other, the other thing is like the practicality of the way that they learn magic. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, I would say Celia in her nature is far more Harry Potter and Marco is more like Hermione Granger in that it's about books and, and figuring out how to do things through books and, and doing uh, it through very rigorous <laughs> laid out systems. Right. And, and all the details matter. And Celia, it just comes naturally to her because her dad was a magician, and so she's she's born into this. She does things naturally without really knowing why she's doing it. But at the same time, it's I mean, it's natural, but it's kind of like the Michael Jordan was naturally talented at basketball, but he also you know practiced put, put <laughs> an in his ten thousand hours, <laughs> an insane amount of time to become you know to, to channel yeah. all that into what we now know as Michael Jordan. Like you can have natural talent and never do anything with it, mm-hmm. uh, and it's through you know, the abuse of her father that she does all this work. But then also we, like we, we mentioned in our earlier episode about this, uh, it, it becomes not just because of the abuse of her father, that she's pushing her limits is because of her love for everyone in the circus and for Barco mm-hmm. that she pushes her limits beyond, um, what her father had been able to even get further, especially at the end. Yeah. And her dad is, her dad is always telling her like goading her that you have to work harder. You have to do more. Uh, but at the end it's not her father. It's her love for, the people around her that pushes her to the next level when she, man, it's so cool when she jumps into the fire and says, <laughs> Which, and, so and she awesome. does what her father failed to do. Like yeah. she does the spell that her father turned him into a ghost. That's barely there. That can sometimes talk to her, but is mm-hmm. generally <laughs> too awash in the world. To... So, so here's a question. Is Marco's style of magic more sustainable than Celia's? Cause it seems like Celia herself was sort of about to crack. Yeah. Near the end. And I don't think Marco was, I mean, Marco's dilemma was that he wanted to be with Celia and he wanted to get out of the challenge, but I don't think we got the sense. Well, aside, aside from the stuff that he was doing to Chandresh and some of the other people, like that was not really that great. Um, but, but it seemed like, it seemed like in terms of running the circus, he was fine as long as he had, you know, he had the bonfire as a power source of some sort and he had his mini origami circus, which I love that room. I want, I want to see that room on film. We should, we should talk about a potential film adaptation. I think we're oh, all yeah. probably thinking, all right, Director, one, two, three, say it. Miyazaki. Oh, I was thinking Tim Burton. No, I was going to say Tim Burton also. <laughs> like, well, live action versus. Yes. Yeah. Oh, but Miyazaki would be 
so, so good. Miyazaki's my go-to for stuff that I think is unfilmable. I'm like, oh, but Hayao Miyazaki could do it. <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't get the, the sense that this is an unfilmable story. I get the sense that it's a, like a CGI, like a really great CGI master's dream. See, I almost, more than a, I mean, it, it feels like maybe it needs to be like a Henry Selick claymation, mm-hmm. uh, to get some of the, Fancy more than a live action with actual people walking around. I don't know. I I like the idea of doing some kind of animation just because I think animation lends itself to the fantastical in certain ways. I mean, yes, we do have CGI, but CGI can be overdone and look really and also like yeah, it would, uh, yeah. you would one would hope that it would be done really really well <laughs> and not super poorly. Uh, but I, sometimes I'm reading a story and I think I, we just, we're not there yet. Like we could, nobody could make this story and right. make it look good. I didn't get the sense with the story. I think it could be done. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think CGI has reached a stage where you could make this in a live action film and make it look really good, but it would take, it would take like a really great combination of CGI and, and like practical effects and being able to meld those things together, hopefully seamlessly. See, I was going to say in some ways, CGI has reached the point where it's removed some of the magic from filmmaking where you just kind of say, Oh, it's all in computers. Mm -hmm. Um, and and we've lost some of the, the, how did they do that? So I don't uh, like claymation for me still has some of the, like, how did they do that (laughs) with claymation? So maybe that's why I said that. I'm thinking about something like, um, like Mad Max, the film that came out last year in which some people say, Oh, it's all practical effects. And mm-hmm. and the truth is, it's not all practical effects, but it looks all like it's all right. practical effects because they use the CGI so like lightly or efficiently. Efficiently. Mm-hmm. And they and they 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 combine it with practical effects in a way that it never feels like you're looking at characters running around in front of a green screen. It feels like you're watching Cirque du Soleil actors doing incredible things, which you are. Yeah. Like they are Cirque du Soleil actors doing incredible acrobatic feats. And then, and then that's laid on top of like a, another practical effect of an explosion. Right. And you put both of those things together using CGI and it looks like the Cirque du Soleil guys are being blown up, but they're actually not. Right. So I was thinking, it, um... you can do it in a way. And that, that was like Mad Max is like one of the highest rated films on Rotten Tomatoes. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, pretty much everybody that's seen that film loved that film. Or I was thinking, uh, BB-8 from Force Awakens, which is practical, yes, yes but there's a lot of CGI to make right. the practical work. Yeah, and I think uh, Force Awakens <laughs> did, did it pretty well across the board of combining, um, CGI and practical effects to make a film that looks just like a film. And it doesn't look like a cartoon, like, like real characters running around in front of a cartoon screen. I, sometimes I like to visualize it as, you know, there's a, like, Imagine all the things you can do practically is like a circle. And then if you add the things you can do with CGI, that's like expanding the circle. So it's like a ring around the circle. Uh-huh. And I think bad directors tend to take that ring and, and make the practical circle smaller and be like, oh, okay, the stuff that would be hard to do practically, we'll just do it. We'll just kind of cheat and do it with CGI. And what I really respect are the directors who take that practical circle and expand that as much as they can and then take the CGI circle and say, okay, now what are the amazing things we can do with CGI that even the animators or their people are like, I don't, you know, I don't know how we can do that. Um, and one example that comes to mind is, um, 
I really like like Guillermo del Toro for you. I'll I'll try the Spanish. Well accent. done. <laughs> oh, that's, that's pretty good. It's better um, than my French. I'll say that. <laughs> I you know Hellboy Hellboy two is not as good a film as Hellboy in my opinion, but um, but there's a scene where there's this like there's this like um, elf prince and he's fighting Hellboy and he has this very like <laughs> like acrobatic kind of fighting style and Hellboy's got this more stocky fighting style and so he he's fighting Hellboy and he has this spear and he does this like series of like tumbles and flips and turns and twists and all all these moving gears and you're just like okay there's no way there's like that's got to be completely like animated right? right no they hired an Olympic tumbler and put him in the elf prince's yeah. Clothing, and then and then they they CGI the spear in, so he wasn't actually like doing his flips and stuff. And even the things they had him doing were really challenging because he tries to do it and he only lands it like one time out of five or something. But the time he lands it, it's amazing. And so like that's the kind of thing where you assume, oh, that must have been completely you know completely CGI. And instead, like, no, we're going to try to really do this practically and then kind of push it to the extreme. So yeah, I think Guillermo del Toro could do a pretty sweet uh, nice circus film. Also, yeah, I, I'd sign off on that. With my okay. massive producer's check, right. <laughs> yes. Well, have his people call. I'm surprised call he hasn't announced that's one of his future projects because he always seems to have about 18 future projects, and then suddenly a film comes out that wasn't even on that list. Like, wait, somebody what? did. <laughs> somebody has bought the rights to this. So yes, they, it was yeah. uh, the, the company that did Twilight. <laughs> I'm, you can't hear it, but I'm wrinkling my nose. No, no, we can still hear it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that pause spoke volumes. Right. <laughs> we both are like. Uh, I have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think we went off on the filmmaking tangent when we were trying to talk about <laughs> the different styles of magic of Celia and Marco. Uh, where Marco, he has his book and it's all detailed and it's all written in ink. And when we see that origami room of the circus, there's strings that are attaching everything and he's got, you know, it, it's this perfect miniature version of it. And like we said, it seems like Celia just kind of in a lot of ways goes by feel. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and we said that is super taxing on her. Like she is the one that is going to break actually. Like yeah. if this contest was to go on, it really seems like Marco was the one that was going to win. Not, yeah. not, uh, not Celia. So like you said, is, is this the same system of magic and one's just more organized and one's maybe, I, I mean, it seems like what Celia is doing, like Marco's blown away when he finds out about it. So maybe she's demonstrating more power and mm-hmm. what she's doing, but it's going to burn her out. But she's also, she's also blown away by some of the stuff that, that he does. The ability that he has to, to really create illusion, to, to take somebody's consciousness and create a whole world around them. Right. The first time he does it is with Isabel in, in the rain. And he says, like, you know, come closer to me or something. Close your eyes. Or he touches her eyes with his with his wet glove. And all of a sudden, they're in, like, a forest. And, like, uh, Celia can't do that. She's not capable of that of that kind of magic. I get the sense that there it, that it is one sort of magical force that, mm-hmm. that, that they're both tapping into. But they're doing it in really different ways. And they do different things with it. They have different skill sets. Which I think is really cool. One other thing I was going to say. I think I might be running out of batteries tonight. <laughs> you need a bonfire. Power <laughs> bonfire. Oh, I was going to say, um, it makes me think of like uh, like musicians and how some people are just, they're like gifted child prodigy kind of musicians and you can just put it in front of a piano and they can play anything. And other people are like they don't have that kind of natural ability, but they just work really hard at it. And uh, a friend of mine used to call them trained monkeys. <laughs> but the the end product between both of those things can can become indistinguishable. Like you, if if 
it's hard to distinguish between like a natural prodigy and somebody who's just worked their tail off for decades. And if they're both masters of their craft, it doesn't really matter how they got there. Well, and I think that some of what we call being a natural prodigy is it's is also taking a very strong interest in something. And so uh-huh. it's not just that it's not just that you are good at music, it's that you're thinking about music all the time. Or you're uh-huh. I remember I remember hearing an interview with with Andrew Stanton, the Pixar director, where he started talking about how animators view the world. And and I finally got it like, oh, he thinks about animation all the time. And that's why you know, it's not just being a natural prodigy. It's that if you spent all your time thinking about this, you kind of thought through certain problems that other people uh-huh. maybe aren't even going to start thinking about until much later than you. And then it looks magical. And it's like, well, no, I was just thinking about this all the time anyway. So, yeah. And maybe, you know, and maybe having the circus and having, I mean, it, it kind of makes them think, it gives them motivation to think about their magic in very unusual ways because they want to impress each other. They want to outdo each other. And so it's not just, oh, we have natural talent or, oh, I have all this training. It's, it's, you know, like when she collaborates with, um, with the engineer to make the, the sort of otherworldly carousel kind of thing. Um, that's a very out of the box thing. And that's something that her father never taught her, but she's motivated because she just, you know, she wants to, she wants to impress Marco and she wants to, be creative and she wants to just kind of play around in this world. So I'm just cleaning up our notes a little bit so we can see what we have talked about. And what uh, have I just about. want to real quick, I want to throw out another name to direct this. I'd like uh, Robert Wine, the director of the 1920 cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh. <laughs> okay. German expressionism all the way would own this book. This would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing that, um, we got a, we got a Facebook comment from, I think from Rachel Helps. She said that she was kind of disappointed at the, at what was and wasn't explained in the book. And, and in terms of, if you look at like a, a spectrum or a scale of, of magic that has lots of rules and explanations and magic that doesn't, this is definitely on, on the, the far end of like yes. mysterious, magical. This is not a Patrick Rothfuss wise man's fear where. Right. Or a Brandon Sanderson. Right. Explicitly yeah. Explicitly laid out. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Brandon Sanderson has even explicitly talked about this, basically saying that the more the more you give your magic rules that your audience can understand, the more problems you can solve with your magic. Because you, you know, because otherwise, and, and, and fantasy kind of gets gets a bad reputation of like, oh well, anything can happen. You it know? becomes a day of ex machina. Right, right. So you can say like, well, a unicorn came and fixed all all the problems. You know, but but I thought so. So when I do read a book that's more um, that's more mysterious or the magic less explained, I do start to pay attention to be like, okay. How are we going to solve this problem? Because ultimately the problem, there are kind of two things they set up. They explain a little bit more. And one is, is Hector's, how Hector failed to kind of dilute himself and using the world as a touchstone and how if you had a smaller thing that might actually work you could sort of gain this immortality by using something smaller you know hint hint in case we might have to do that in the future and the other one is that is that celia can only affect her own body she can't do she can't affect other living things because she tries to heal the bird and she tries to save her and she even even people that she knows really well she can't do that and so i think it's a sign that she knows marco really really well because she is able to affect him and kind of take him along with her right although we do get a hint of that when um when uh after they spend the night together she slows down his heartbeat because she wants him to fall uh-huh. asleep because she wants to leave and so that's kind of a sign that she actually can affect him like she knows him well enough that she can she can physically affect him but but for most people she can't i one of the things that i loved about this is this uh bailey mm-hmm uh, I think he's a really cool character. And I love at the end when they say, this all rests on you. And he says, what, me? I'm not special. 
I'm like a, I'm a nobody. And she says, yep, you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because so you, I, because I think that there's throughout this, I kept, I kept doing the, like the Star Wars thing where I'm like, who is he related to? He's got to be somebody's <laughs> daughter or son or something. And he says, I'm not special. Not the way they are. I'm not, I'm not anyone important. And Celia says, I know. You're not destined or chosen. I wish I could tell you that you were if it would make it easier, but it's not true. You're in the right place at the right time, and you care enough to do what needs to be done. Sometimes that's enough. And I'm like, oh, man, if that could be what they say about Ray, I would be happy. Yes. <laughs> you know? Like, not everybody has to be born to, uh, you know, like the greatest parents in the world or right. or there has to be a prophecy that you're going to be the one. Sometimes you just have to be the right person in the right place. And have a desire to do the right thing. And it's enough. And so, I thought that was so cool. So um, I agree with everything you said, but I was actually really annoyed by it most of the time. <laughs> so coming up from a different perspective, I liked Bailey, but I was a little bit annoyed with the whole, like, like the one non-magical character who just shows up and, like, the, you know amazing bewitching redheaded you know circus performer falls in love with him like he just seems to have yes. a lot of a lot of like awesome things happened to, to him, him. <laughs> right and so i was kind of annoyed with it because it seemed very it just it, <sighs> in some ways he his wishes were all fulfilled right or, or, or a little bit like or a little it. bit like <laughs> like wish fulfillment or i'm trying to remember like like a like a mary sue marty stew i'm um, just like oh come on like why do you like wander into this and then suddenly you get all this handed to you um but then at the Real end quick explanation mary sue Marty yes Sue, can you explain okay that so listeners? so the idea is that um so <laughs> i was just I've pretending that i knew what she was talking about <laughs> we just sometimes throw things out without explaining okay them. so listeners ask. And, and, I'm, and i'm gonna try to get this Right. But I think the issue is that, is it, okay, it's so fan, is it, it's a fanfic term. It's a fanfic term. And I think it's like a person who's just too perfect and too well, amazing. So the original is that the, an author, like a fanfic writer who's writing in some established universe mm -hmm. and they put themselves in it and everything awesome happens to them. Right. <laughs> and right. that was called a Mary Sue because it was, I mean, there's some gender issues here where a lot of times it was uh, something that was said derisively about female writers who mm -hmm. were writing fan, fan fiction. And so, but then it's kind of evolved as terms do to mean like any character who is too good at everything right. in a story becomes right. called, uh, if it's a female character, a Mary Sue. And if it's a male character, it's a Marty, the, Stu. A Marty Stu. Yeah. So, so he just, he just ends up and has, you know, all this like amazing stuff happened to him. And now the circus rests on you when you are the chosen one kind of thing. But then at the, at the very end, I mean, and yes, Celia tells him he's not special, but at, at some point, I think when he's like getting ready to put his name into the bonfire, he says something like, he realized he would always choose the circus. And I was like, okay, you know what? This whole thing started with a dare with his sister, you know, mm -hmm. go get something from the circus. And she didn't think he would do it. And he did. And so like, based on that, the fact that that's kind of his driving character principle, like, no, he's not special. No, he's not magical. No, he's not related to the right people. No, he's not born to the right people. He's not even a proper river, you know, but like he, he chooses the circus. Like he has a choice and he chooses the circus and he cares about it. And so, and that's, the choice that kind of sets him on the path where he is and, and making that choice over and over again kind of makes him to the person that he is. It kind of reminds me of um, the film, a man for all seasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, Thomas Moore at the very end of that film uh, is going to be a uh, so, spoiler. Sorry. If you haven't seen that film from 1970, <laughs> I was say, several decades old at this point, spoiler running off um, spoiler from history. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's about to be executed a little farther. And a couple days. He tells his executioner 
he says, don't worry, uh, you're sending me to God. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the man that's in charge of the execution then says, are you so sure that that's where you're going? And Thomas More looks at the guy and says, uh, yes, because there is no way that God would deny somebody access to his presence that so desperately wants to be there. And I think there's something of the, a Bailey in that. Like, yeah. <laughs> he so desperately loves the circus and, and is tied to it, not by magic, but just because he loves it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that's what makes him special. This, I think, is a good segue uh, to a question that we had from Brooke Evans on Facebook when we solicited a couple questions where she asked about uh, Thiessen or Thiessen um, and his relationship to the circus, which she says is pretty interesting. And I'm not sure if I have any specific ideas about discussing it, but I want to know if you guys have any. And when I read the chapter where he first kind of inadvertently starts up the reviews. Uh, <laughs> I love how you say that. <laughs> I think it's pronounced Huger's. <laughs> what was it? Fuhrer? Is Fuhrer. that the one you guys oh, had a hard oh, time yeah, with? Fuhrer. Wait, wait, wait. We, t- we cut that. It ended up just being an out because we couldn't keep any of that conversation in. Um, <laughs> Fuhrer can sound like mine Fuhrer. <laughs> it's like Fury. You don't say furry. That's something else. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just a little too close. <laughs> Some other loaded terms. Okay. <laughs> I will say occasionally I listen to your podcast and I yell at you guys. That's all right. <laughs> like, that's not how it's said. That's not how it's pronounced. So Feel free. Feel maybe free. that's why I volunteer to come on so I don't have to yell at you guys later. <laughs> I think you the goal, the, the, the golden person. rule though, and I, I, like, this is a little more serious for everyone is like, never like, make someone feel ashamed for mispronouncing something because it means they yes. learned it through reading. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very true. Which yes. always promotes the and reading. And French especially is completely counterintuitive. Yeah, and so, I'm having a little fun with my struggles. With if re- somebody doesn't review. pronounce Spanish correctly, I say throw them under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> they, if they don't pronounce Sp- French correctly, uh, all kinds of mercy. Is that some? Are those are those good pedagogical techniques? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <The> Spanish <laughs> teacher <laughs> succeed or drown. <laughs> um. Anyway, back, back to these and end of. I'm not even going to try. Rever- re- uh, and the reverse. Yes. Rever. Rever. Revers. <laughs> uh, it's fan culture. This is yeah. a perfect description of any fan culture. Sports fandom, uh, comic book fandom, mm-hmm. uh, music fandom. The way that this is, gets described, you could replace the circus and the culture that rises up around it and the kind of insider-outsider status of those who really love it versus those who are kind of acquainted with it. This is, this is pure fan culture, and I love that. So I have to say, this is kind of why I refuse to buy fan culture t-shirts or kind of clothing, because I always feel like I'm not worthy to wear them. Or like, if <laughs> like if I've seen a couple of seasons of Doctor Who and I have like Tardis earrings, someone's going to be like, oh my gosh, you know, and like season eight, episode whatever, I'm going to be like, yeah, no, no clue what you're talking about. So I, I totally to hug of- Matt Tennant at the <laughs> Comic-Con and I got his picture. <laughs> right. Can I do show and tell? It's gonna be hard for our listeners, but yes. Okay, but can we can we include- Yeah, we'll put a we'll okay. put the picture in show notes. Okay, so I have a story. About six years ago, I was looking for a present for a friend of mine. So I went to Etsy, home of unique presents, and my friend really liked tarot cards, and so I found this woman who had done a series of tarot cards and she was selling like individual limited edition prints of the tarot cards. So I bought one print for a friend of mine and then I bought one for myself because I'm like, well these are cool. The one I bought for myself is death, but it's this very unusual kind of death. It's like this woman with this 
black and white umbrella and this like long kind of coat or dress and a and a sight. So it's not the sort of typical creepy death, whatever. And the umbrella is completely covering her face. Yes, yes, so she you could don't have a skull face. That's true. She could have a skull face underneath the umbrella. So last night I was um, I was looking at fan art based on the Night Circus, which, by the way, go to DeviantArt or Pinterest or somewhere and look for Night Circus fan art because there is a lot of it and it's really, really amazing. I bet. And I was going through and someone had posted a picture of this tarot deck that I had seen like six years ago. And I was like, oh yeah, it's a black and white tarot deck, like in the story. So that's cool. But then they sent underneath like, the author, Erin Morgenstern, is also an artist and like years ago she made this tarot deck. And so... <laughs> This is hers? Yeah, I, I own a limited edition Aaron Morgenstern print, and I did not even wow. connect the two until last night, so I would never have known. How cool. Yeah. So we'll put that picture up in the... So you're a Night Circus insider. I, 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 an unexpected revere, right? Do you, have a red, do you have a red scarf? I could knit one. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to say about reading this story is sometimes when I'm reading... I get lost on these like wild goose chases on the internet. Of, mm -hmm. Like you read about the contortionist mm -hmm. and you're like, Oh, I need to see a contortionist. <laughs> then you go online and then you're like watching America's got talent, like episode after episode of contortionists. And then they start. And I'm, I've always been, I don't know, always, not always, but <laughs> for sure since grad school been sort of fascinated with the occult. I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> But uh, I just think it's really interesting, you know, alchemy and tarot and all of these things. And that's a, just a total, like, rabbit hole for me. If somebody mentions tarot and then they mention, like, a specific card, then I feel like I, I feel compelled to, like, go and look it up so that I can see what they're really talking about. And this is the, so there were part of the reason that it took me so long, four days, to read this novel is because <laughs> I kept getting uh, sidetracked by these. Uh, I did go and look up the meaning of several of the tarot cards that got named. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just such a fascinating world and one that we're, and I think circus, like circus life in general, the world of the circus yeah. is so, like it's this marginalized, like dark, kind of transgressive space. Mm -hmm. And, so, and I think it's, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, past guest of the show, my brother, John, <laughs> had uh, mentioned on Facebook that we should talk about the carnivalesque, which is exactly what you're describing right uh -huh. there. The Bakhtin's theory of, of um, the carnivalesque is uh, about the space where opposites meet and where the rule, traditional rules are uh, kind of removed. But because of that, you find more truths than uh -huh. what kind of mundane everyday life often hides. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the night circus has so much of that, um, you know, no color, just black and white, uh, being at night instead of during the day, um, not having the you know, the traditional layout of, of a circus, but instead being kind of free form wandering, you know, there's so much of it that falls into the carnivalesque as well. Awesome. Real quick though, tying it back to, to fan culture. I love that you mentioned like, do you have a red <laughs> scarf? Because it made me think of like the way that these reviewers that know each other, uh, <laughs> um, that, you know, they see each other and they adopt, you know, they know that they're both insiders and they, and they, they, you know, they, they, um, congregate and they talk and they meet. And it makes me think about like when you're at an airport and like, if I'm wearing a Michigan state, shirt and i see someone else who wears a missing state shirt like we even though we may not ever like actually communicate like we make eye contact and there's a sense that we we belong to a group you know <laughs> that there's there's some insider status uh you know based on that and i think everyone in the entire world 
could find that insider status with someone else about something. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. uh, but often we, we, we don't try, uh, but certain kinds of fandoms allow us to kind of proclaim our insider status of, I am a fan of this particular sports team or of this particular music group through the shirts that we wear, um, or, you know, the patches that we have on our backpacks or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it may be that we, we often will declare our fandom in a way that allows us to, to identify others who share that fandom and immediately find that connection, which would require a lot more work. Uh, if you, you know, you're just, everyone's wearing gray suits <laughs> and, uh, and, and bowler and, hats. Yeah. And bowler hats and, and that, you know, there's the set uniform. And, uh, so I, I think there's something really fascinating about the insider outsider status that that fandom can confer. I like that. All right. A couple other notes from Facebook. Just want to give, make sure that people who gave us feedback get, <laughs> that, that we try and uh, respond to that. All right. This is also from Brooke Evans. Uh, she just says the timeline jumping. What do you think about it? <laughs> and she specifically says it made it for a difficult audiobook. And I mentioned that when I was reading it, like the physical copy, I would flip back chapters and say, yeah, look yeah. at the dates and like, wait, when is this lining up and trying to keep that? So as a narrative device, what did you think of the timeline jumping? I think it's brilliant. I really, really like it. I love that the one that Bailey's story is essentially stationary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it moves through time so much more slowly, and we get the sense that the past is kind of hurtling to catch up, to catch up to this present. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that that's happening, uh, then the structure itself really drives the story because you know that the further you, the further along you get, the closer you'll get to these two timelines smashing into each other. And there's something really satisfying about that when it happens. So I, th- I really like the way that it's structured and, and the way that it's paced. And then, and then she does this brilliant thing at the end, which she doesn't have to do, uh, where she turns Widget into the storyteller mm-hmm. and, and it's a, it becomes a snake eating its tail or this never ending story. I, I just, <laughs> the, co- the combination of those two things makes me think, yeah, she's, she's pretty good at what she does. <laughs> Well, and, and those interludes that, that kind of just describe the circus from the point of view of a, of a spectator. It's um, your own. Yeah, it's your right, own right. point it's, of view. It's second person present tense. That is very hard to pull off. I have That's seen rare it done. in literature. Not as rare as I'd like it to be. Um, <laughs> done well, though. I've, I've seen it done badly. Um, yeah. No, but, but so I noticed that immediately and I was like, oh, well, this is actually working. And even the rest of the story, and I don't know, I don't know that it's necessarily a, a, significant stylistic choice, but I did notice the rest of the story is in present tense. And maybe that's, you know, for immediacy and maybe that's because you're time hopping and so you're kind of always in the moment. One other thing about time jumping, I noticed it was used very effectively right when right when Hertison gets gets stabbed on accident because because you know, so Isabel undoes her charm and then she hears a scream and then you jump forward a year in time. And so you don't know what happened yet. And so like, we're yes. jumping past the moment, but we're not telling you what happened yet. And so this is where it's sort of like, aren't we so sad that thing happened a year ago? And you're like, what, what, what happened? Why are we screaming? <laughs> so that's, that's a really amazing way of preserving tension by jumping ahead mm-hmm. in time. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think I, uh, the second time through, and also when I was prepping the summary. I think I appreciate it more than the first time because I remember some frustration the first time through. And I think the audiobook would be very frustrating because oh, yeah. yeah. I, I had to have those times where I could mm-hmm. like say, wait, like, like I'd be like two pages into the chapter. Like, wait, which timeline am I? <laughs> and, and, am even, I right now? and even then I, I don't think I necessarily, I mean, at the end it was really clear that we were jumping back and forth between those two years. Even earlier on, I don't know that I necessarily caught all of the time travel. Mostly I tracked it through, through Poppet 
and widget is like, oh, she's old now, she's young now. Mm-hmm. So, so that kind of helped me track it. But yeah, any, any time where you have to flip back and forth in a book, or like I, at one point I flipped back to see what Isabel's tarot reading of, um, of Celia had been to, to try and figure out what she'd seen. And I do think that that's something that would serve better by a, by a print copy than a, than an audio book. Yeah. But if it is read by Jim Dale, I will have no Oh, complaints. right, right. I mean, <laughs> Jim Dale could read a wordless book and it would be amazing. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> he somehow found a way to muscle through. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but also, like, structurally with the time hopping, like, when we're getting close, like, you, Todd, you said the collision of the two timelines mm-hmm. of, of Bailey's and the circus, it's really interesting, like, formalistically, she shortens a lot of those chapters and it becomes mm-hmm. very quick paced as you're reading and then once they do meet, it becomes a very long chapter. <laughs> and nice. Yeah. It gets drawn out a lot more. Um, um, and I, I think even, again, that formalistic thing of how these chapters are laid out and the length of these chapters, I think you get mm-hmm. a very unique rhythm uh, reading this book uh, versus some others. And then the other thing that I want to mention about the timelines, you mentioned like the interludes, that's the you, know, you in the present tense. I loved and at first I was kind of like, why is this even it? Like the epilogue. I'm like, do we really need this, <laughs> this right. final one right. of you leaving the circus? But then when you get the card and it has an email address, like she's yes. jumped, that is now a third timeline that you right. never really oh, yeah. were aware yeah. of. Like that says the circus exists in the present day. Like this is still going and, and Bailey is there. still in charge. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I both finish the book and immediately go to our computers and send an email <laughs> to that email address. Like we've been there. The, the, the illusion is complete. Like we have we have been in the night circus listening to widget tell us this story it's just it's it's really it's really i think it's really well done yeah the no, structure it's, it's, is it's a very fantastic. unexpected payoff yeah yeah and and that's such a i i mean it, it's almost like it's on the cusp of being too cute mm-hmm. to have that email address but for me it, it does the perfect thing where it, again it's resetting this timeline or, or establishing that this all these inter- interludes have been you reading this in the present right. day or like you experiencing the, the night circus in your present day, uh, without having to do anything really explicit in this, in the narrative itself to say, this is all happening in 2000, you know, 11 when the book was published. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I really appreciated that. So I stayed away from Facebook. Uh, I went, I went Facebook dark on this for, <laughs> for a few days. Cause I really didn't want to be spoiled. I didn't, uh, like you, Kirsten, I did not read the, uh, I didn't read the dust cover. Mm-hmm. I didn't read any synopses. I just, I just said, this is what we're doing for the podcast. It must be good. And <laughs> dove in. And then when I saw that people were commenting about it, uh, I, I stayed away from those conversations because I didn't want anything spoiled. But I, I'm guessing that this note, so I'm just looking at our notes on our Google, our Google doc. Uh, but it says her style has been compared to Neil Gaiman or Susanna Clark. Do those comparisons hold up? What do you what do you think? I I'm not familiar. I haven't read anything by Susanna Clark. So Susanna Clark is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, I've seen which I again a chunk of that uh, miniseries that I made. Okay, so So I I read that, but it was a few years ago. Um, it's it's historical fantasy, and it's very. I don't. I read a few years ago, and I honestly don't remember that much about it, other than that I liked it. Uh (laughs) Um, but it's it's historical fantasy, and it's very kind of mysterious, and it has these, and it has this sort of like. An otherworldly kind of a feel to it. Um, I, I definitely think this is very different in terms of the dreamlike quality and the imagery being so important. But that, but that whole sort of like the, the historical fantasy, which is kind of a, a growing genre of fantasy set in the past, which is apparently not our past, but it's similar to our past. But right of, then it was our past. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, or maybe it's a hidden part of our past kind yeah. of thing. And I, I think that 
I think Neil Gaiman's not a bad comparison. Because Neil Gaiman's also on that end of the spectrum that we talked about, where it's not Brandon Sanderson or right. Patrick Rothfuss. Right, right. Yes. Neil Gaiman's more of the... Yes. Uh, well, and he also does the, the urban fantasy and right. the urban magic. And also and just it's kind the, of hand-wavy. Mm-hmm. Right. And also just the really, really amazing world building. Um, You uh-huh. know, like I remember reading, was it Neverwhere, that has like all of the... the Denizens London. of under London. Right. And, and the, but all the tube stations have these like very significant meanings. It's like, oh, what if you had this like a, you know, world building surrounding like London tube stations? That's so cool. How did you think of that, Neil Gaiman? <laughs> um, so, so I, th- I feel like people who like Neil Gaiman would probably like this as mm-hmm. well, but I do think she's doing her own thing and it's very, you know, it's, 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 I still think it's significantly different from, from them or for anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I think with a Venn diagram, you, I would, they would definitely there's definitely overlap mm-hmm. between Gaiman and uh, Morgan Stern, right? But they're not. I don't think that she's parroting him or trying to do the same thing. I think it's more association with like great imagination, kind of a hand wavy kind of uh, magic system, right. where, where the mood and the atmosphere are as important. As- yeah, Neil Gaiman has a really distinctive tone. Sure. And, I, and, and like narrative voice. Mm-hmm. I was and say, I don't think word choice. <laughs> That's yes. what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for helping me choose those words. <laughs> um, well, but, um, uh, but I don't think that she's, I don't think that she does that. Right. I, I don't, I, this doesn't feel, this is a beautifully written book and like structurally it holds up really well. Mm-hmm. And just the words on the page are nice. Like it's delightful to read. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, I don't know. I kind of so, I want to say that Gaiman I feel is a little bit more poetic in the way that he expresses some things than than she is, but maybe that's not fair. Yeah. No, I was gonna say I feel like with Gaiman, you could pick up any chapter and you'd probably find something that could be a quote that someone would pass along mm-hmm. <laughs> to someone else. Yeah, and I think we both quoted like the the speech to uh to Bailey from mm-hmm. Celia as like one of those where like you're not special, but you're here right now and you're willing to do it and that's enough. Like that's one of those, but it feels like there'd be a like lot more kind of, of those in Neil Gaiman. I, I was reading this and I, you know, I marked like four or five things, but all within the last 20 pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I feel like there's, and part of that is just the structure. It's, it's sort of like the movie, the prestige in that the, the book itself is the illusion mm-hmm. and, and the payoff comes at the very, very end when all of this stuff kind of comes together and there's this great satisfying thing, and so I feel like maybe she's holding her, you know, cards close to the close to her chest, and then she plays them all at the end. Right. Uh, but it feel there are those kind of like quotable moments, the discussion about story that we have to get to. <laughs> but but it all kind of comes at the end, and I yeah, we're pushing a third. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's definitely. Um, Comparisons to, to be made between yeah. her and uh, Neil Gaiman, but their writing styles are different enough that I think they they maintain their own identity. All right, so let's jump into that. I, maybe our final topic, the story one, mm-hmm. which yes. uh, we get a lot with Widget um, at the end. But I wanted to read whenever. Are you going to read the same thing that I want to read? Is it on part five, <laughs> the title page of part five? No, it's this chapter that starts with, um, story. Stories have changed, my dear boy. Okay, uh, it's not. It's uh, so when. I, in my summary, I said like part one, part two, part three, part four, part five. And yeah. on those pages, she usually has quotes from Thiessen and the one for part five. So this is getting into the, the, after the, the climax. So, so we're into the denouement. Uh, I can pronounce that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the quote from Thiessen is, 
I find I think of myself not as a writer so much as someone who provides a gateway, a tangential route for readers to reach the circus, to visit the circus again, if only in their minds, when they are unable to attend it physically. I relay it through printed words on crumpled newsprint, words that can be re- that they can read again and again, returning to the circus whenever they wish, regardless of time of day or physical location, transporting them at will. When you put it that way, it sounds rather like magic, doesn't it? <laughs> um, which I think th- this whole finale is about story and the power story. Yes. Uh, this is when we get the big discussion with Widget. And then the second quote that she has in there is Prospero's speech from the Tempest. Now, obviously she has Prospero, the, uh, Celia's father who stole the name from Shakespeare, but that speech about, uh, that Prospero gives at the end, I'm not going to read it all here, but it's about, um, the power of storytelling. And a lot of people view that as Shakespeare's retirement speech. Cause this is the last solo play that we have of his that was written. I, don't, I can never say it was the last one that, that he wrote because we've lost a lot of his plays. It's quite possible there was another one in there. But a lot of people view that Prospero's speech at the end of The Tempest as Shakespeare's own kind of retirement, but some of it is about the power of story and, and the ability to transport people. And I think that's certainly what she does with the story is transport us into the circus, and we spend some time there. Yeah. Uh, so what did you want to say about story? Uh, we were both grabbing our books to read a section. So, what so was your section? Uh, this is the chapter <laughs> just just a few pages after where you're reading. It's um, Stories, Paris, January 1903. It says, um, Stories have changed, my dear boy, the man in the gray suit says. There are no more battles between good and evil. No monsters to slay, no maidens in need of rescue. Most maidens are perfectly capable of rescuing themselves, in my experience, at least the ones worth something in any case. There are no longer simple tales with quests and beasts and happy endings. The quests lack clarity of goal or path. The beasts take different forms and are difficult to recognize for what they are. And there are never really endings, happy or otherwise. Things keep going on. They overlap and blur. Your story is part of your sister's story is part of many other stories. And there is no telling where any of them may lead. Good and evil are a great deal more complex than a princess and a dragon or a wolf and a scarlet-clad little girl. And is not the dragon the hero of his own story? Is not the wolf simply acting as a wolf should act? Though perhaps it is a singular wolf who goes to such lengths as to dress as a grandmother to toy with its prey. What do you what do you think of this? Is it true? I mean, are our stories now so different from the stories that we told have told in the past, or so much more complex? See, so yeah, I, and I think he kind of goes back. On, I I don't agree with that, and I think he goes back <laughs> on it in that same chapter. <laughs> uh-huh. Because uh, when Widget says that like he's like what's your magic powers kind of and he's like story and the guy's like oh wow (laughs) (laughs) i love that that's the best magical power and this is right after he's had this whole monologue yeah Uh so you think he himself doesn't even doesn't even buy that yeah that we are still telling the same stories i think that the stories that okay one of the most successful stories of the last few decades has been Star Wars, which is this very obvious, you know, good, evil, light, dark. Like, like I think that we tell lots and lots of different stories, but then some of the ones that stick that we really, you know, of all the other films that came out in 1977, like, there's a reason that one stuck and a lot of the other ones didn't, because I think we actually do like those epic good and evil light and dark kind of stories and those like we like we think those are the stories we always told of the past because that's what we have from the past that's what we've kind of brought forward with us and then we say like oh now we just do all this sort of random crap or whatever and it's like well no we've always had that kind of noise and that and those other kind of complex stories but the but the but there's a certain kind of story that that tends to stick with us through generations or through centuries yeah i mean the other massive one that's gonna you know be forever is harry potter Mm -hmm. which is a pretty basic story right. of yeah. the, the chosen good guy right. fighting the really evil bad guy. So, yeah, I, I, 
I like what you said, Kisha. There's always been other kinds of stories, but there tends to be certain ones that stick and linger and still get, you know, brought up again. So I think, is this maybe the, the part that you're thinking about where the man in the great suit says, someone needs to tell those tales. When the battles are fought and won and lost, when the pirates find their treasures and the dragons eat their foes for breakfast with a nice cup of lapsang souchong, somebody, someone needs to tell their bits of overlapping narrative. There's magic in that. It's in the listener, and for each and every ear, it will be different, and it will affect them in ways they can never predict. From the mundane to the profound, you may tell a tale that takes up residence in someone's soul, becomes their blood and self and purpose. That tale will move them and drive them, and who knows what they might do because of it, because of your words. That is your role, your gift. Your sister may be able to see the future, but you yourself can shape it, boy. Do not forget that. There are many kinds of magic, after all. Yeah, um, because it's right after, you know, the he... he uh... He says, what do you do with your talent? And which it says, I tell stories. And it, and the quote is, you tell stories. The man asks the peaking of his interest, almost palpable. And then Widget kind of says, it's not important. And then the man says, no, it is important. And that's when he gives the, uh-huh. you know, that paragraph you just read. So yeah, I, I think that that monologue at the start of the chapter doesn't really hold up through his entire, you know, through that one chapter even. Yeah. And I think maybe it fits for the man because the man in gray, Alexander, he's, He's shown as being kind of tired and world weary and, um, he's doing this contest, but he doesn't seem to have his heart in it as much as <laughs> Prospero does in some ways where he, like he's the one that's ready to call it off after Thiessen dies. And so maybe he had kind of started to convince that, convince himself of that, that, you know, this, these stories don't matter anymore. <laughs> it's all just redundancies. Uh, but then. But is so that what he's saying? Is that what he's saying at the beginning is that they don't matter? Or is he, is he saying that our stories now are far more complex than they ever have been? And that there are different shades of gray, right? He's the man dressed in gray. Yeah. In a, and so you have, you have two worlds. You have the black and white world of the, of the circus. We have this like strict binary. Mm-hmm. And then you have the man in gray. And I think what he's saying at the beginning of this is our stories are now far more complex and we deal far more often in the gray areas than we do in the simple black and white. And, and then at the end he says, we, we need somebody to continue to tell stories because there's magic in that. So I don't, I don't see what he says at the end of this chapter as a contradiction of what he's saying at the beginning. Okay. Well, and, and, and that's an interesting point about, about, telling more complex stories instead of just black and white stories, because you could have a very simple summary of this novel, which would be two magicians have protégés who battle against each other, but they end up falling in love and they make a great sacrifice so that they can be together forever. Mm -hmm. Um, But that would lose a lot of that. Like we talked about, like none of these characters are completely morally, you know, like, like, like completely above board in everything they do. And part of the importance of the story is, what do people do for love? What do people do for, for, you know, competition or for other motivations? And so, and so she's taking a story that could be very black and white, young, reckless love. You know, we've told that story before and kind of, and giving it a lot of nuance and giving it this massive cast of characters. Um, and, and so it's, it's sort of like she's, she's taking all that moral complexity and putting it into the story and then explaining like, you know, these are the stories that we tell now. They're these very complex stories. They're not the simple, they're not the more simple stories of the past, maybe. Yeah, I see and that. I, I guess I, I just had read that opening as being more beaten down. <laughs> I guess <he> did <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in, in the way that he delivers that. Uh, but no, I, I see your reading entirely. Yeah. I'm, I mean, 
And in some ways, there's not a right or a wrong reading. Maybe it's complex. (laughs) I mean, in in some ways, this is a defense of telling complicated stories, and the Night Circus is a complicated story. So it's kind of, in some ways, this is her kind of saying, "Thank you for sticking with me, (laughs) readers. Here's some of the reasons why I told the story the way I did." Well, and we talk about, I mean, we talk about, oh, it's so amazing that she couldn't get an agent, you know, to to pick her up. But we don't really know what state the story was in in its manuscript form. And this is a very, very complicated story. And, you know, you've got shifting timelines and a huge cast of characters and circus imagery and visual imagery and tarot. And you're trying to keep all of this straight. I guess I just feel like we need to put in a plug for agents and editors yeah. to, who do really good work. In, with in the acknowledgments, she thanks her agent for seeing um, what was good in a mess of a manuscript. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think how right. she puts it. Well, I mean, she wrote it in one month. She wrote, she wrote right. a, a, her whatever her original manuscript was. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine that it looked very much like what <laughs> this yeah. thing that we get here that she wrote in, in one month during, during NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I, I'm sure that the, there were tons of iterations and to get something with the polish that we see here. Yeah. I also think it's kind of interesting that she hasn't yet written another book and I, and it feels like she threw everything that she loves into this book, um, which it, you know, which is great. And I don't fault that. And I, but I do kind of wonder, maybe she doesn't have another book in her. Maybe this is, maybe this is it. Maybe this maybe. is everything she wanted to put in a book. And she did. She put the so, Prospero yeah. speech in as her retirement right. speech. I, <laughs> like that wasn't just Shakespeare's yeah. retirement. This yeah. is mine. I'm out. <laughs> Enjoy. I, I was talking to a writer in Spain um, and he was telling me there's two kinds of, uh, there's two kinds of writers. There's writers that are s- sort of career like you start and you write some poetry and then you start writing short stories and then you send them out to, to magazines and you get a couple published and then, you know, in, in, in your free time, you're working on your novel, but you're still publishing short stories and you just sort of like constantly kind of churning stuff out. And he mm-hmm. said, there are other writers who like the muses come, they write something incredible mm-hmm. and then they get it published and then, <laughs> and that's, then that's kind of like, it's kind of it. Yeah. And it might be it for, for a short time and it might be it for forever. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I don't know what, what else she's, she's doing, but it, it seems like this was a kind of like a flash in the pan. Like it came and was really, really successful, but she doesn't seem like she's just churning stuff out. She's not a Stephen King. She's right. not Stephen King. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and like we were saying with, with nature versus nurture, you know, it, just based on like some of her art and her other work, it seems like these are ideas that she'd been thinking about fan culture and artists and, you know, the circus and creation. Like these are things, ideas she'd been thinking about for a really, really, really long time. So it's not even so much that the, that the muses maybe came and left. It's like, no, this is the product of what she's been thinking about for, yeah. for 30 years or however old she is, you know, and maybe it'll take another and maybe continues to, another. maybe, maybe continues to do so. I yeah, mean, sure. we don't know if she's working on a, She's working on a script with somebody and she can't really talk about it or if she's, you know, she's certainly continuing to produce art and and probably interact with her fans. I don't know. I mean, this may just be kind of her thing still and that's, that's fine. I'm I'm not, I'm not going to tell her she has to go write something else. She's, Mm -hmm. she's done a fine job and she deserves whatever she gets out of this. I, I want to just touch back on this, this idea of storytelling and our, our stories now way more complex. There's, I read a, I heard a talk the other day by a guy and I'll have to look it up and put it in show notes, but it was about how like fairy tales are dead and that all these, these simple fairy tales that we used to tell our children, like our world has just moved on and they've sort of lost their power. 
And then I was looking at, I'll, I'll just say it. I was watching trailers. I, I watched multiple trailers. <laughs> the new, uh, the Huntsman, the, the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. winter the, or whatever. The Snow White minus Snow White. <laughs> yeah. And there's a line at the very beginning of, I think, two, if not all three of those trailers, which is something like, uh, do you want a fairy tale? Do you want this fairy tale story of Snow White? Well, you're going to get way more than that. Like, this is, this is, this is the, it has just a bare bones or like the, the heart of maybe what was once a fairy tale, but it's way more complex and, and there's so much more going on now. And, and it made me think of this, this, this thought that now our stories are just far more complex because we live in a, in such a more complex world. And there's a way to read the night circus, uh, as this postmodern, just kind of crazy complex novel. But again, I think if you boil it down, it's not hard to get back to black and white and and a really simple story. I mean, like I said, it's a Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I think I think sometimes we think we think we're far more sophisticated than we probably really are. I don't think that's a sometimes. I think <laughs> <laughs> we usually are patting ourselves on the back about our our modern state of things. Yeah, and we get the sense that. This is, this is the natural way and that we've evolved to a certain point and we're just gonna, you know, we, we're a stone that's been cast out into space and we'll just continue this trajectory forever and, and there continue to be these things that pull us back into past ways of doing things. I think it's also, I mean, simultaneously probably giving too much credit to our present way of doing things <laughs> and too little credit to the older stories. Yeah, to the way that things were done in the past. Yeah. That's like, we're so, we're so beyond. Fairy tales, but like how many film versions of Snow White have been made in the last 10 years? <laughs> the Kenneth yeah. Brown of Cinderella was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, any final thoughts about the Night Circus as we've done two full episodes at this point? <laughs> yes. <laughs> On for a third. No, no, no. we'll stop. I think we're no. good. Uh, <laughs> thank you, listeners, circus. for putting up with two episodes about the Night Circus. Hopefully you found it rewarding. Uh, and we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and leave us a review there. Please do that. We're up to 21. I'd like to see us reach 25 soon. That's the march towards 25 right now. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if just four of you go and do that right now, we're done. The march is over. Uh, so please do that. And links to everything that we've talked about are at protagonistpodcast.com. And we'll also have the, uh, the Morgan Stern original art. <laughs> a copy of that posted up. Uh, that, that, uh, Kat, or Kirsta brought in for her. <laughs> Let me cut that. I uh, have a secret identity. Yeah, I just Seriously. revealed your secret identity. <laughs> My friend called me that at work the other day, and the other person's like, who are you talking about? <laughs> All right. We'll also have, uh, the art that Kirsta brought in for her little bit of show and tell in an audible format. <laughs> uh, but you can go see that at protagonistpodcast.com. And you can email us at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And you can follow us all on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and BYU underscore librarian. Thank you. And please visit our Facebook pa- fan page at facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening, listeners. And we'll be back again <laughs> to yes. talk about another great character, another great story. So long. So long. I think we just added value to that song. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Plus, I don't think... We just added value to Final <laughs> Countdown. <laughs> like, do, do, do.